0: I want you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Revelation chapter 1. We are making our way. I can't say verse by verse because at this point we've kind of been phrase or concept uh, at a time. And yet I want to take our time um, to do this because the Bible says we've already read, when it comes to the book of Revelation, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And even though we've been in the book of Revelation for many weeks now, and we're really, even today, we're still only down to chapter 1, verse 6. I don't know about you, but I've already been blessed by the things that we're learning and the things that we are discovering in God's Word. And so we're just kind of walking along and picking up the next idea, the next concept um, turning it over to see what 's underneath the rock of that truth, or as my professor would say we're um, we 're digging to find gold to see the truths of the things uh, that are there so many times when it comes to the prologue when it comes to introductory section, we just kind of seem to get through it and get on to the good stuff and what we 're discovering with the book of revelation is is it 's all good stuff it 's all good stuff, and so because the book of revelation um, Relates to quotes, alludes to as an illustration or analogy of a concept in the rest of the Bible, primarily the Old Testament and the New, we are pausing at each step along the way to hold up the idea of what we're discovering and find out the biblical foundation, the biblical truths that support even why God through the Holy Spirit would take that one word and place it right there in the text. Uh, On Wednesdays, we're learning about studying God's Word, the difference between inspiration, illumination, and application, and all of those types of things as our approach to study and how to study God's Word. And um, as we've talked in the past, God inspires His Word, and He chose the specific Word to go where, and we would do well to ponder uh, God's Word and to think on it uh, deeply. So here in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, we are just going to read the prologue to kind of get it in our mind. But today, primarily, we're going to focus on one word, kingdom. Uh, But just so that we can kind of get the idea of um, what is kingdom and how does it fit in and why are we studying that, let's read uh, the prologue together. The Revelation to John, chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. With this understanding, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in this case, it really is the only place in the Bible you have the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son emphasizing ...the son's action and activity uh, throughout the book of the Revelation. It puts him there uh, in the spotlight. And as we've seen before, it describes Jesus with these words, Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name, it's his title. It means Messiah, anointed one, chosen one of God, if you will, uh, Christ, anointed one. And he is the faithful witness... He faithfully testified about sin and its consequences. He faithfully testified about salvation and its blessing. And He faithfully testified that He Himself is the Savior of the world. And He faithfully testified that only those who come to Him, come to the Father through Him, receive salvation and eternal life. So whereas you and I can look back at times in our life and we say, you know what, I could have been a witness there, but I kept my mouth shut. I should have said something about the gospel here, and yet for some reason I I didn't do it. Where you and I perhaps at times have been unfaithful witnesses, Jesus at every place, at every opportunity, at every time, faithfully gave witness to the truth about man, the truth about sin... The truth about God, the truth about salvation, and the truth about eternal life. He is the faithful witness. And then we also saw that he is the firstborn of the dead. You can go back and look in uh, Psalm 89, and we see that the firstborn is a title that's given to the Messiah. We learned in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, and Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that he's the firstborn over all creation. And He's also the firstborn. I want you to look at this. Look at this. Flip in your Bible, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see that this is not an unfamiliar concept. Um, Colossians 1, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Talking about Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But then it also says in Colossians chapter one verse eighteen, he's also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So in the in the old creation, he was firstborn. Title given to him, being in the preeminent place, doesn't mean that he was the first person existed. He's not uh, claiming to be the first person born. It's a title given him with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that would go within a Jewish cultural concept to him. But he's also the firstborn or in the preeminent priority place in the new creation. And that's what Colossians 1 18 tells us. So he is the firstborn. So it's not that Jesus was ever born. He's always been God, he's always existed as God. He was born of a virgin. At Christmas time, we celebrate his incarnation, his coming to the earth. But yet we know that he has existed um, eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity past we also see that not only is he the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, but he's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he is the king of kings, if you will. And we read that earlier today in Psalm 2. The little k kings of the earth, they devised their plans and schemes against the Lord and his anointed. But God says, look out, uh, I'm pouring out my wrath and I have set my king, Jesus, as we sing about today, I've set my king on Uh, Zion's holy hill. And then, so now we have the threefold description of Christ in verse 5, but we also have uh, the activities of Christ as well. So let's look at this. To him who loves us. We said that's the only place in the Bible that it talks about God loving us in the present tense. Um, Now, Romans says, "...who shall separate us from the love of God." In indicating that, of course, God still loves us, but the other places in the Bible, as we saw on that day, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God demonstrated His love. Um, Christ loved us. Ephesians says this is the only place in the Bible that speaks of Christ's love for us specifically in the present tense. He loves us and released us from our sins. So at a point in time in the past, uh, our sins that kept us in bondage, we were in bondage to sin and could not free ourselves. Because we couldn't free ourselves from the bondage of sin, Christ had to come and He had to release us. That word release, as we saw a couple weeks ago, is, is like a trap or a snare. Uh, I related it to um, uh, a, a bear trap that would... That would Catch a bear by the leg and couldn't let go of him. That's the way our sins had us. And we needed a rescuer. We needed a redeemer. We needed a savior to come and to release us, to overpower that snare and to release us from sin's snare. And beloved, only Jesus can do that. And let me just go ahead and say this. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen uh, automatically. It doesn't happen by a choice uh, that you just make that you're going to start walking with Christ. Beloved, you can be there in that trap, in the snare of sin with all the positive thinking, with all the hoping and those things that are there. But until you repent of your sin and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord and apply the work that He did on the cross to your life and he applies the work that he did on the cross to your life beloved listen to me you though you know the lord the lord does not know you you must repent and believe the gospel so that you're not a matthew 7 right many will say to me in that day lord lord haven't we prophesied in your name so there are people who are speaking mouthing the words of christ Haven't we cast out demons in your name? There are many people who are, who are doing ministries. Right? Uh, In the name of Christ. And yet He will say to them on that day, Depart from Me, for I never knew you. Beloved, it's not about whether you know the Lord. It's about whether the Lord knows you. It's not about just whether you've accepted the Lord. I accept the Lord. Right? It's about whether the Lord has accepted you. And whether God the Father has, through His Son Jesus Christ released you, broke the bonds of sin in your life in order that you could be redeemed and set free and the power of sin broken in your life uh, eternally. The penalty of sin removed from you eternally and that one day when Christ comes again, you and I will be removed from the very presence of sin. So here is Jesus. He loves us presidents He's released us from our sins. And He did it. Listen, never ever forget the price. He did it by His blood. Beloved, it was by His blood. He shed His blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Christ had to be the perfect unblemished, spotless Lamb of God to once and for all be the sacrifice for sin and thereby um, releasing us from sin by His blood. And here's the third thing. So we had the threefold description of Christ. We had the threefold activity of Christ. We looked at two of them. He loved us. He, he released us. Now look in verse 6. And He has made us to be a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to look at this third aspect here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom. Now, you and I who have always lived in a democracy you kind of struggle with the kingdom. Uh, We don't have a kingdom, we don't have a king, we have a democracy, and therefore we have a president. And with a democracy, what happens is, is we cast votes, right? Nominate a person, we cast votes, so they tell us, not really sure if that's true or not, uh, or whether or not they already handpick who's going to be the president, and then they tell us at some point later, But supposedly how it works, uh, and as I tell my students in the citizenship class that I teach, we're a democracy and so we put forth a candidate and other parties and other people put forth the candidates and they come and present themselves to us, their agendas, their their personalities, where they stand on the issues. And then we cast a vote to put the best of the options before us to be our president. We pledge allegiance to the flag. We do not pledge allegiance to the president. But we certainly support and pray and and hopefully love and encourage uh, our presidents as we we go. But we're not part of a kingdom with a king. And so life is different in a kingdom with a king than it is in a democracy with a president. If you go over across the, 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 the... Uh, The pond, and you go to England. There's a kingdom there, and they don't have a king, but they have a queen. A queen. Uh, They didn't elect her to be the queen. Uh, She inherited, right? Uh, And you have Prince Charles, and you have others who are going to be the rightful heirs to that particular throne. What I want us to see here is is that there are some aspects about the kingdom that we need to be familiar with. We need to be familiar with this idea. This is an idea that's chalked, as we will see in just a minute, all the way from Genesis all the way through and will come about in culmination, in fulfillment, and when Christ returns and comes to reign and rule as king upon the earth. But it's important that, notice what it says here, that he has, it doesn't say he made himself king... Though he is king, and he is pronounced king, but notice what it says, he has made us to be a kingdom. He has made us to be a kingdom. There's no fighting or kicking against that idea. Who would not want to be in a kingdom under King Jesus, right? Particularly those who are the followers of Christ. And yet I want you to see that this is a thoroughly biblical concept, and I want you to see how close you were to missing the kingdom, To missing the kingdom. And so with that in mind, I want to kind of do a a walk through some scripture, both the Old Testament and New. And um, we could spend four or five weeks on this, but we're going to spend hopefully one, depending on how fast I talk, um, looking at some verses to lay the idea. We've talked about the kingdom of God before in the past, and we will um, do so uh, again, obviously, in the future as this uh, kingdom Comes right, and what do we even pray? Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So go with me if you would to Genesis chapter forty-nine uh, in the Word of God. If you've been with us in our in, when we were doing our Bible studies uh, on Sunday evenings, then you know that this is a very important passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter forty-nine. In Genesis chapter forty-nine, verse one. Um, uh, it, it's the first time that the idea or the concept of the last days uh, is mentioned in God's Word. So Genesis chapter 49 verse 1, Jacob summoned his sons and he said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come or in the latter days, in the last days. And so everything that he's going to share here are the things which must take place in the last days. And we've looked at this in the past. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. So in verse 3 he talks about Reuben. And then he talks about Simeon in verse 5. And talks about Judah in verse 8. Now, for example, we see in, in verse 8, "...Judah, your brothers will praise you, your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's son shall bow down to you, Judah is a lion's whelp. from my prey, my son, you have gone up." And notice what it says, "...he couches, uh, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up." So when you hear about Jesus being the lion of the tribe of Judah... That prophecy goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, verses verse uh, 8 and 9. But now I want you to look at verse 10. Notice what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." So this is a last day's prophecy. In the last day's prophecy, he says in verse 10, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah." Now what is a scepter? What is a scepter? A scepter is a king's staff, right? It's a king's... uh, He Only a king has a scepter, and a scepter is a symbol of his authority, of who he is. And so a scepter belongs to a king. And so all the way back here... In Genesis 49, it talks about the Messiah, the one who comes. It talks about the fact that he will be a king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And what's going to happen? Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We haven't seen that. We haven't seen that And so some would say, well, we haven't seen it, therefore it's not true. As Bible-believing Christians, we would say we haven't seen it yet, and it's still to come uh, about. So here in Genesis chapter 49, we see the idea of uh, kingdom, kingship. We saw this as well, and there are many, many places. We certainly can't cover them all, but we saw this in Psalm 2. So if you just want to go over to Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2, we saw this um, where God says, I will set my king. Um, uh, We we also see this this idea, this concept in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, just kind of going quickly and leaving it to you to go and and fill in uh, the details. We've done uh, this study in the past. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, King David, wanted to build a uh, a, a place for God uh, to come and to reign and rule. And he wanted to build God a, a temple. And God comes to him and says, David, you're not going to build me a house to dwell in, but I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a, a, a lineage, a legacy. And God promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7... That, 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 that on that throne would sit a king who would reign and rule forever. And so from 2 Samuel chapter 7 on, the legitimate king to the, of the Jews had to come through the line or the lineage of David. Jesus had to be the son of God. He had to be the son of David. So if you keep going um, to the right in your Bible and you go to Psalm 2, as we mentioned just um, uh, briefly a minute ago, in Psalm 2, verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And, and then we see aspects of that in the book of Zechariah as well. If you turn a little further to the right uh, in your Bibles, you come to the, uh, to the prophets, you're going to come through some of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos... Jonah, Micah, and you come to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 14, though there are many places that we could go. Zechariah chapter 14 um, certainly would be uh a place that we could uh consider uh and and understand a little bit about the kingship of uh of of God. Uh in Zechariah chapter 14, uh, if you will Go down to the. Um, go down to chapter fourteen, verse one. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, uh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will look at this. I will gather all the nations unto Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And so uh, this is going to take place as we've seen in Revelation 6 through 18. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. Then look at verse 4. In that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split... In its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azale. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now notice what it says. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him now go down to verse 9 if you will and the lord will be king over all the earth in that day the lord will be the only one and his name the only one so let's be clear that when it talks about a kingdom, to have a kingdom, there has to be a king. And when it talks about the king, it's not talking about any king. It's certainly not talking about an, uh, an earthly king. It's talking about a heavenly king. And a heavenly king who's going to come and reign and rule upon the earth, as we see here So when we come to the New Testament, then we have to say, okay, so the Old Testament has prophesied. So go with me to Luke's gospel. Then we're going to back up to Matthew. So we have this prophecy. We have this mention. And we just, I mean, we just handpicked a couple of them. I mean, literally hundreds of kingdom uh, uh, reminders and promises that are found in the, in the Old Testament. It is not an obscure aspect at all, but I just want to try to pick the clear ones and say, look, we have to understand that in the Old Testament they were expecting the Messiah to come, and when the Messiah comes, he, he will eventually come to earth and reign and rule and be king, and Zechariah tells us that the Lord is king. So when we come over to Luke chapter 1, this of course course is the birth story of Jesus. So Jesus' birth is foretold in Luke chapter 1 beginning in 26 when in the sixth month of Mary's pregnancy the angel Gabriel was sent from God uh, to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants and he and the virgin's name was Mary. And after the angel comes and all the things that we see in Scripture, an angel appears. uh, And when an angel appears, the first thing the angel has to say is, fear not. Because why? Because there's an angel standing before you. And all angels in the Bible, they're all in the masculine form. And all the angels in the Bible are not cute, pudgy little wings, halos sitting on clouds. Uh, typically, their presence would be um, uh, fearful in, in those things. The reason they have to say all the time, fear not, is because of their, their presence, their presence. Their voices thunder, uh, if you if you will. And here it says in chapter 1, verse 30 the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, notice what it says. Notice what it says about him. You'll name him Jesus, verse 32. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God. Now, look at this. The Lord God. The people aren't going to vote. If the people voted, they would vote against Jesus, just like they voted against Jesus when it came between him and Barabbas on who should die. The people aren't going to vote. Notice what it says. It says, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now look at this. And his kingdom will have... No end. No end. So at this point, it is clear who the king is and the Messiah and the Christ that has been prophesied over and over and over in the Old Testament. So when we come to Matthew, we see that Jesus has already been right declared to be the king. No wonder they were looking and hoping that he would ultimately um, become king and right the wrongs and reign and rule. And yet when he entered into Jerusalem, he didn't enter into Jerusalem on the victorious white horse with the spoils and the prisoners chained behind him to take over He came riding in humble on a lowly donkey, not coming to reign, but glad that He came to redeem. When we come to Matthew's Gospel, we understand that Jesus is the King. We understand that He is the One who is going to usher in the kingdom. Jesus is 30 years old at this time, at the time of His baptism. And there at His baptism we have a wonderful picture of the Trinity uh, where Jesus is there in the water being baptized by John. The Holy Spirit comes out of heaven like a dove landing upon Him. And the voice of the Father, God, comes from heaven saying, Right? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's be clear, there's only one God, but there are three persons of that one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And if you say you understand that and understand how that works, uh, you're a much better uh, person, uh, theologian, than than I am or any others who have truly studied it. And if you say you have the perfect model for it, uh, be, be careful because all models break down. But immediately following the baptism of Jesus, and by the way, when John the Baptist was baptizing, John the Baptist was calling people to be baptized, and he was calling them to be baptized uh, because the king was coming. The king was, come to, was coming. John says in Matthew chapter 3, God says that they are to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus' baptism, He's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And upon coming out of the wilderness, the Bible says that He began preaching. He began preaching and going throughout. And Notice in Matthew chapter 4 verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So here's Jesus, the king, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And the news spread and large crowds followed him. When we come to Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to kingdom constituents, kingdom citizens if you will. He's up on the Mount of Olives and He is King is speaking to them about life, what life is going to be like in the kingdom. We come to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, Chapter 8, uh, He cast out demons, indicating that as King He has power over the demons. In chapter 9, He heals a paralytic's hand, indicating that He has power over sickness and disease. When it comes to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus summoned His twelve disciples... And He, as King, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And here He takes these disciples and now He makes them apostles. Notice what it says. The names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip Bartholomew. All of these disciples. Notice what it says in chapter 10, verse 5. These These twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them. So He has taken as King and speaking to His disciples, He sends them out and calls them apostles and He sends them out with His authority. He sends them out with the authority of the King. And now we come to uh uh-oh. Because notice what it says here. Then Jesus sent out after instructing them Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any Samaritans, uh, in any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, at this point, congratulations, Jewish people. Mm, I'm looking around and. And you're saying, now, wait a minute. All of this stuff about the king and the kingdom and everything, you go back and look for yourself. The passages that we read, whether Genesis 49, Judah, Jewish. David, Jewish. John the Baptist, Jewish. Jesus, Jewish. And now Jesus sent him out. And guess what he says? Don't go to the Gentiles. So, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this? Are we to make of the fact... I mean, it's clear you can't argue with the words of Jesus. Beloved, listen, if the kingdom of God would have come in in Matthew chapter 10, you and I would be excluded from the kingdom because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and Jesus is saying don't go to Samaritans and don't go to those pig-eating Gentiles. And I don't know about you, but I am proud to say that I am a pig-eating Gentile. And I don't care whether it's Smithfields Percy or Stokely's, it is good, good to me. But we have a problem because the kingdom is at hand and the king is saying, don't go to the Gentiles. What is this about? And how do we come to this place and how do we understand this? And if this is true, I always thought that I was part of the kingdom and Jesus was my king. So how does all this come about? Next week I'm going to tell you. Now, I'll give you a little I'll give you a little I'll give you a little hint. I'll give you a little hint before we stop. Up to this point, the kingdom is a hand. The kingdom is a hand. The kingdom is a hand. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is doing these miracles and Jesus healed a man and the religious leaders they they hated it they came to him and and they actually and and they actually ascribed the power that Jesus had they ascribed it to demons they ascribed it to demons Jesus is is healing and Jesus is teaching and Jesus is doing all of these things and yet, what happens is is they come and 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 they say this is not being done by the power of God. Matthew chapter twelve, verse twenty three. The crowds were amazed when they healed a demon possessed man. Verse twenty four. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons." Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, "Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do you do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges." But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, then he will plunder his house. Jesus goes on and He says this, He who is not with Me is against Me, and he who does not gather with Me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people but the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. In other words, Jesus says, when you clearly see with the greatest light that you can possibly see, when you clearly see with the greatest light what, that you can possibly see, the power of God, and you reject the person of God and the power of God, there is no hope for you. And unbelief is the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. It's not divorce. It's not, it's not uh, alcoholism. It's not addiction. It's not pornography. It's not homosexuality. It's not lesbian. It's not any of the things that you would think are and treat people as though it's the unpardonable sin. It is not. The unpardonable sin is something that was done in that day, clearly seeing with the greatest light possible, Jesus, the Son of God, and seeing His person and seeing His power and rejecting and denying the person the power of Jesus and going a step farther and saying, the devil is the one who did that. So there are people who would argue and they would say, well, can you do the unpardonable, unforgivable sin today? The unparable, unforgivable sin today, I would say a person can't do because when a person denies Christ and the person, the power of Christ, it is possible for them to repent and to believe in the person and the power of Christ. And yet the Bible is clear that a person comes to a place, right, where they were at one time sensitive. They were at one time, they were at one time open to The Spirit's conviction uh, open to a convicted conscience. And yet their conscience has been seared and they reject Christ and become so hard-hearted that God gives them over. He gives them over. The problem is, is we don't know when that is or if that has happened. And so therefore we keep preaching Jesus until the person breathes their last even though they reject Christ even though they, they deny Christ even though they pretend that they're alright with Christ and we know that they are far from God have never repented and received the gospel we keep preaching Jesus because their faith is not sealed from our perspective until the day they breathe their last So because these national religious leaders rejected Jesus, Jesus comes down and He basically says that the harvest is going to come at the end of the age. Go, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. After He's been teaching and teaching on the kingdom of heaven, He presented a parable about the mustard seed, a parable about the leaven, a parable about tares among wheat. We come down to Matthew chapter 13, verse 36. He left the crowds... And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And, and, And here's what Jesus says in chapter 39. Up until this point, he's always said... The kingdom of heaven is at hand and the harvest of the kingdom is coming in. And here he says that the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. Now what's going to come at the end of the age? Verse 41. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice verse 43. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So though they sought to thwart the kingdom of God, Jesus comes and says, not because of them, but because of the plan of God. The kingdom of heaven is going to come, but no longer. You will never read from Matthew 13 on that the kingdom is, uh, is at hand. From this point on, The kingdom is no longer at hand. It's coming at the end of the age. And the reason it's going to come at the end of the age is because God has a plan and God has a way to bring you and I into, to bring us, you and me, to bring us into the kingdom of God. And we're going to understand that next week. Okay, next week. So where are we? Where are we? Jesus says in Revelation chapter one, going to make us a kingdom. Alright? Going to make us a kingdom uh, and priest to our God. So far we've seen He's making the Jews in some way, shape, or form, all these promises are to the Jews. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but now the kingdom is going to come at the end of the age. And beloved, if you are a Samaritan or a Gentile or anybody that is just simply non-Jewish. Now let me be clear. I want to be clear before I close. The only way that the Jewish people are brought into the kingdom of God is the same way that you and I. And that's through the precious blood of Jesus. They are not brought in. There's not another second pathway into the kingdom. They will come in through Jesus. Many of them will be destroyed. Many of them will be killed. Many of them, right, in the tribulation, two-thirds, nine-tenths, depending on the, 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 the uh, verse that you read, are going to be destroyed because they rejected Jesus. But those who survived those things will be brought into the kingdom, will be brought into the church through the person and work of Christ Just like you and I. There is no separate path of salvation for the Jewish person. They must come in through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But at this point, what we see is it's primarily a Jewish kingdom. And you and I know that we have to be brought in. And how are we brought in? And what are the specific verses that tell us that we as New Testament Gentile believers are part of the kingdom of God and will reign and rule with Him forever. We will need to look at that next week. Be encouraged. Uh, There is a path. There is a plan. And there is a way. And God will bring us there. Don't uh, not come back next week uh, because you will be left outside of the kingdom if you do. But if you come back next week we're going to get you there. We're going to get you there. We're going to get you into uh, the kingdom. So this week no eating pork no eating right now. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Live as Gentiles Um, but next week we're going to see how we fit in with the kingdom. And how do we make Revelation 1-6? And how do we make uh, Revelation chapter 5? where it talks about the kingdom of God fit in. And should we be praying, right? Jesus told the Jews, pray this way, right? <clears throat> Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Beloved, if His kingdom would have come when Jesus taught them how to pray that prayer before He went to the cross and died you and I would be excluded from the kingdom. I'll just lay this out as one point of application you can think about. Sometimes, delayed answers to prayer are best. Right? If when Jesus taught disciples, pray thy kingdom come, if they would have prayed and God's kingdom came and God answered their prayer on that day, it would be a Jewish kingdom and you and I would be left out in the cold but God delayed for our good and for His glory. And sometimes when we pray and God delays, it's for the same reasons. For our good and for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for loving us. and Thank You for sending Jesus to us. And Father, I'm well aware that this is a uh, somewhat of a TG instructional uh, message today but father our desire is to learn your word our desire is to is to know you to love you we want to focus on three things here at Docs: loving god learning the word and living on mission so father help us to um, expand our hearts and minds to understand uh, these uh, difficult concepts and father continue to go with us in the days ahead lord it is my prayer that that, Father, um, if there's an area of our life that we are out of sorts with you, that Lord, that you would uh, draw us to yourself, that we would repent and believe the gospel, that we would anticipate the coming King, and that we would know our part in his kingdom. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.